the Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Football rivalries can get intense. So much so that in some cases, people end up shedding blood for the team that they love. On October 30th, 1926, a game that should have been in good fun resulted in the end of an innocent young man's life. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Though many don't take their love of football past a heated argument with a rival fan, in 1926, a battle between two rival schools took place that would alter the lives of many. Called the Battle of the Brazos, people gathered from near and far to watch Baylor and Texas A&M formerly the Agricultural and Mechanical College of Texas, compete for the title of Southwest Conference champions. Having developed quite the rivalry since their first face-off in 1899, not only were people vying for the sports title, but many of the boys attending the all-male A&M College were also hoping to catch the attention of some of Baylor's co-eds. According to the tales, the Baylor men weren't too fond of having to share the girls with the men from their rival school. And with misogyny getting the best of some, they figured the football field was the best place to not only release their frustrations, but impress the girls, alumni, and fans who came to watch the game. 
With the games moving to the 10,000-seat Cotton Palace Stadium in the 1920s, a packed house was expected as A&M brought their cadet corps and paraded them through the streets of Waco. The festivities had begun and both excitement and tension started to bubble throughout the entire state. Now, because the football showdown had, in the past years, led to one riot that had to be broken up with fire hoses and another that saw both male and female students assaulted while the Waco police tried to put an end to the violence, when the 1926 game started to approach, Baylor had law enforcement on standby for any post-game wilding. But to the shock of many, the violent event happened before the final whistle could ever be blown. On October 30th, 1926, when the game came to a pause for halftime, a group of men started marching out on the field dressed in cadet regalia. Now, in all the past games, A&M College would march their cadets onto the field where they would perform military calisthenics. But because the entire corps did not come for this particular game, the 400 or so cadets in attendance decided not to perform without the entire group. But wanting to both entertain the fans and poke some fun at their rivals, the Baylor men, dressed as fake cadets, took the field and made fun of the A&M routine. Anger skyrocketed, and to make matters even worse, a Ford truck pulled onto the field that was filled with Baylor women holding up signs with previous game scores on them. While this might seem harmless on the surface, people began to snap due to the fact that at a previous game, a Ford nearly collided with some of the A&M students during the halftime show. Unable to take the disrespect, two cadets from the college, later identified as W.L. Lee and G.L. Hart, jumped onto the field and began running towards the moving vehicle. Lee dove into the car window and grabbed the steering wheel, jostling the car and caused one of the girls to fall off the back. Louise Normand, injured, lay on the ground as all hell broke loose between the two schools. As the Baylor men rushed onto the field under the guise of protecting, quote, their women, weapons like clubs and wooden chairs were wielded against rivals, as in the midst of the riot, an A&M cadet named Charles Milo Sessoms was struck on the left side of his head and fell quickly to the ground. Carried to first aid by a fellow cadet, William Moores Jr., the band tried to lull the riot by playing the Star-Spangled Banner as lead Aggie Yell leader, J.D. Langford, loudly apologized to the crowd and commanded his men to swear to stay in their seats even 30 minutes after the game to avoid any further incidents. Everything calmed down, Baylor won 20-9, and everything went back to normal. No one had any clue that the young man who had been taken to the first aid station was quickly transported to Providence Sanitarium, where doctors, finding a skull fracture, could do little to try and help him. Assuming rest would help him heal, they told him to sleep it off, and at 9 a.m. the next morning, Charles Sessoms passed away due to a blood clot. After his parents traveled from Dallas to collect his body, a funeral was held on November 2nd, 1926. Following the death, an investigation by Pinkerton's National Detective Agency began with the purpose of finding the man who struck the fatal blow. Though Detective Isla Floyd Benedict narrowed his suspect pool down to just a handful of men, he never called for an arrest. He would later say that he suspected a cover-up by the town mayor, Dr. H.F. Connolly, and no arrests were ever made. 
As years passed and the story became marred by rumor, myth, and bias, historian and Baylor alumnus T.G. Webb took a look at the case and found a, quote, unofficial cover-up that involved the city of Waco. Releasing the information in his book, Battle of the Brazos, A Texas Football Rivalry, A Riot, and A Murder, Webb said he learned about the case 10 years before when a student selling game day programs made an offhanded comment about the incident. Digging into the case himself, Webb claims that he was able to find out the identity of the man who killed Charles Sessoms in an archive at A&M, but says that he can't be 100% certain that this is the man. He did, however, claim the cover-up was committed by several high-ranking officials in Waco, who decided not to prosecute and ruin the man's life. He goes on further to state that the man, in his opinion, intended on wounding, but not killing Charles. He said that there was no evidence of an official police investigation and that news of the murder only appeared briefly in the newspapers. Now, according to a texags.com forum, after the college interviewed 40 witnesses on the field that day, and according to a typewritten report with an unknown author and unknown date, the man responsible was someone called Hubert C. Connolly. If that name sounds a little bit familiar, it's because Waco's mayor at the time, mentioned briefly in the story, was Dr. H.F. Connolly, Hubert's cousin. Also related to the U.S. Representative Tom Connolly, who would eventually become a U.S. Senator, the Connollys were a prestigious family, and if news got out about his involvement in Charles Sessom's death, it would have left a permanent black stain on their legacy. Again, however, this accusation comes from just one document. While it seems that many people saw what happened that day, and legend was passed down from generation to generation, it's difficult to know what is true, what is rumor, and what is a blatant bias lie. What we do know for certain is that a young man died because of a football rivalry taken much too far. The schools played against each other for the last time in 2011, and by that time, most people had forgotten about the riot, and unfortunately, about Charles Sessoms. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to A Terrible Thing Happened on October 31st. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.